Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Welcome back to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast. We are here again studying the book of Haggai. Uh, this is somewhere around our 10th or 11 study in the book of Haggai, going through this book now, verse by verse. We started off, if you haven't seen the previous videos, by doing a historical background and introduction to the book. Then we went through and did some biographical sketches of the main characters of the book, the the, the main people that are involved and um, now we are making our way verse by verse through the book, uh, taking some larger sections of passages and also taking smaller sections and even breaking it down into uh, words and phrases and things of that sort. Today, we're going to be in Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And there's a particular idea that really stood out to me uh, as I was reading this recently and uh, began to look into it and found something very interesting. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So we will start with Haggai chapter 1. We will read verses 1 through 5. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, unto Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Now a few weeks back, a few studies back, uh, we looked at the overwhelming reality that Judah clearly understood exactly what God wanted them to do when they left Babylon. When Cyrus sent them back, there was no question. Um, Cyrus understood, Zerubbabel understood, Jeshua understood, the people of Judah, they all understood exactly what God wanted them to do upon arrival back in Jerusalem, having been sent out of captivity and back into the promised land. But then here we are in the book of Haggai, and uh, they developed an, an excuse to justify their inactivity. You know, they, they, they found themselves in this state of indecision. They didn't know what to do or um, how to overcome the adversity they were facing, which is reasonable that there's, there's nothing unreasonable about that. The problem is, even through adversity, we are supposed to remain obedient to the word of God. And what Judah decided to do was to allow the adversity to overcome them. And then in return, they began to make excuses for why they were not being obedient to God's word. And that, that God very clearly found to be unacceptable. Now, while in this state of indecision, they had no trouble taking care of themselves and building their own houses. They had no issue turning that focus that should have been on the house of God on themselves. You know, God has a beautiful way of pointing out our hypocrisy. You know, we have an excuse for A, so we decided to do B, only to find out that we were doing A for ourselves. 
we just didn't do it in the way that God expected us to do it. And, and, um, and God can definitely put his finger on those things and point them out to us. So God sends Haggai the prophet to address the people. And in doing so, he adds relevance to an idea that I believe we need to address. I think it's an idea that is, uh, you know, it's, I don't believe it's splitting hairs. I think it's an important problem that we are facing in our churches. And it's, it's an idea that didn't, that was not, that that did not uh, exist previously in fundamental Bible believing Baptist churches. Uh, We used to make fun of Pentecostal churches because of the wild and and crazy things they would say. And, and, (laughs) Now we've adopted at least a modified version of it to some extent. Many of God's people the world over have been given this idea that they should not make a move in the direction of service to God until God sends them some external revelation informing them to do what they plainly know from Scripture God wants them to accomplish. And that's the problem. That that ultimately is the idea that I, I believe our, our phrase today, and I'll announce it in just a moment, is going to address, we, we, you know, especially as a missionary traveling on deputation before we made our way to Uganda, we would meet these young people who have such an overwhelming desire to serve God, but they've been taught that they can't move forward in that desire. They can't do anything about that desire until God gives them some special external revelation that permits them to do what what God clearly would have them do. You know, it may be a missionary somewhere. It may be, uh, you know, serving God somewhere in their local city, their local town, in their local church. But we've sold people this idea that you can't do any of that unless God gives you some external revelation outside his word that permits you to do it. And, and, I believe that's an unreasonable proposition. I believe it's a problematic proposition. And I think we are, in many ways, we are reaping the, the fruits of that idea. Um, a, a number of missionaries have remarked how as they go home on furlough or as, as they're on deputation or pastors are, are concerned that young people are not being called into the mission field anymore. They're not going anymore into the mission field or very few are going. And then a large majority of the ones that are going quit halfway through or or as soon as they as we see here face turmoil or adversity they give up and i believe that's that is the outworking of our philosophical approach to how god would have us live our lives especially pertaining to service to him if we're going to approach the christian life as though we cannot serve god unless he gives us some special external revelation outside his word, I think we're putting ourselves in a position to receive judgment from God. And we don't want to be there. We don't want to be in that position. We don't want to be Judah. These things are written for our learning and admonition. And Judah had clear revelation from God. They knew exactly what they were supposed to be doing. And yet they're sitting around saying, well, I guess the time just hasn't come yet. (laughs) If God would just tell us when, if God would give us a little more information, a little more revelation, if he would help us understand, if he would give me some leading, if he would give me a feeling, if he would give me peace about it, then maybe I would do what he he wants me to do. But until then, I'll just kind of sit here and wait and build my own house. And, and that's, that's, I think that's where we are in the Christian life. A lot of people who desire to serve God are doing nothing or at least very little, because they they have been sold this idea that if God doesn't reveal to them that they are supposed to do A or B, even if Scripture clearly says if you are a Christian, you are supposed to be doing A or B, then they can't move off that pew because they haven't got this special intuition, feeling, notion, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. The, the plain commands from Scripture— no longer suffice as our final authority. Now we, we now we give assent to the idea. You know, we we'll say, yeah, you know, of course, scripture is my final authority. Okay, well, you're going to go serve God this week. Well, if, if He'll open a door of utterance, I will. <laughs> you mean God hasn't told you to go into any anywhere into into the world and preach to anybody, like all the world and to every creature? 
And so we, we, we then blame God inadvertently. We, we, we put the onus on God and say, well, God didn't, God didn't give me this special feeling. He didn't open a, a theoretical door of utterance. He didn't do this or that. And, and so even though I have clear revelation from God in written form, expressly instructing me to do it, to do, to, I can, I can know exactly what God wants me to do. I have, I have the, I have his clear instruction, but if I don't, if I don't get some external revelation by way of feeling or leading, or again, a, a notion or something along those lines or peace about it or whatever ridiculous idea you have adopted to blame God for you not doing what he clearly wrote in his word. That's not a good place to be. That's not a good position to be in. Um, you, you, we have the written word of God. We have no excuse. Now, the book of Haggai informs us of the danger that comes from spiritual procrastination, especially when we blame God for doing so. Judah received clear instruction from God. They knew exactly what God wanted them to do, but they allowed adversity to prevent them. God had no reason to speak to them further until the work they were given was accomplished. That's very important. We th This beautifully parallels the exact situation we are in as the body of Christ. God gave us his word. We have the complete book that something that no one, no one ever had until, until the birth of the new Testament. And then the completion of the written of scripture, we have it all assembled. If you have a King James Bible, you have the perfect, pure, inerrant word of God, but somehow we can't figure out what God wants us to do. So instead, instead of busying themselves with that work, the work that God clearly told them to do, they waited for a time that wasn't coming. That is, they desired further revelation from God that was unnecessary. So as the church, we have, we have the Bible. We have the complete Bible. We know that it tells us the Lord is coming back. He's going to come back. He's going to catch away his church which will, will, this will be repeated in just a moment. I'm not trying to, I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I just, I want to frame the idea. He's going to catch away his church. And then we know exactly what's going to happen after that. Now, between now and the time the Lord comes to call his church up into the air, do we, ha do we have no instruction on what to do and how to live and what the Lord would have us to do and how he would have us to do it? I think we do. I think we have plenty to know and to understand, and and we're still waiting for something else. And, and I, I believe that's unacceptable. And as a result of Judah's attitude, and I hope and pray, not as a result of our attitude, <laughs> either as individuals or as a body or a nation, whichever, uh, if your nation has turned its back on God, that comes with consequences. If your local assembly, your local body of Christ has turned its back on God or is uh, indifferent to the commands of God or doing what God expects us to do. That comes with consequences. And as, if you as an individual have turned your back on God or have become indifferent to doing what God says to do, that comes with consequences. And you don't want to find yourself in this situation, in this position. So as a result of this, this attitude as we read in, in Haggai 1, verses 1 through 5, as a result, then came the word of the Lord. Now, that phrase, exactly as I've said it, then came the word of the Lord, is repeated 10 times, exactly as it is written there in Scripture. And every single time it is mentioned, God is pronouncing judgment on his people. It's not a good thing to sit and wait and be disobedient to God while claiming to be waiting for further revelation from God, you might get it. God might send his word, but it's probably not going to be that feeling of, of peace and that feeling of a leading and that feeling of a notion or whatever it is you're, you think you're waiting for that has that is hindering you from doing exactly what God wrote. You're putting yourself in a situation to where God might have to send someone along with his word to deal with you. And that's where we don't want to be. 
because every single time it is mentioned in the Bible, judgment followed and it was destructive to God's people. And God did it. Now, God did it as a, as a source of punishment, as chastisement. He's, he's got to deal with our disobedience. So we don't want to put ourselves in a place of disobedience and then blame God for our disobedience. Now, nobody says what's well, God's fault. What they say is, well, if the Lord would just lead me, as though he hasn't done that. If the Lord would give me peace about it, peace about what? You have clear scripture. You have clear revelation from God. What would you need peace about? And so my hope is that this will cause all of us to sit and think about what it is God would have us to do and where he would have us to be and how he'd have us to be living and how we can be more obedient to that which is written and not waiting on something else to come, not waiting on some external feeling or revelation or vision or, or any other, any other idea that, that you are placing either next to or ahead of the word of God. I don't want to do that. I don't want to see you do that. I don't want the body of Christ doing that. I want us to be obedient to the words God gave us in his book. And that's essential. So you may receive chastening from God while waiting for some special leading that was unnecessary. And, and so I want to help us to escape this unnecessary routine that I believe our churches have gotten themselves into. Now, to further illustrate this idea, uh, this idea that God comes to his people, he says, here's my instruction, now go do it, and you're not going to hear from me again until either that's done or until a further appointed time that God has designated that he will show up and talk and deal with his people. And this is beautifully illustrated again in Malachi chapter 4. It's a, another passage that involves a similar situation to the current situation that Judah is in. Now, they're not being instructed to rebuild the temple, but God is having to come and address his people because of the way they're living and because of their disobedience. Now, there's a major difference between Malachi and, and Haggai. In the book of Haggai, Judah was open and receptive and non-argumentative. They repented and got to work and did what God said which is a tremendous blessing. Praise the Lord. In Malachi, their attitude was very different. In Malachi, God would say, you're giving me terrible sacrifices. And they'd argue, when, where, how? You're not tithing the way you're supposed to. When? You're divorcing your wives and mistreating your wives. When, when did we do that? We didn't do that. We don't do that. They just, they're arguing with God every step of the way. God sent Malachi to rebuke them and they just argue with God. Nope, you, you got it wrong, God. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. And so God ends the book, Malachi chapter four, verses four through six. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Well, praise the Lord. <laughs> That's how the Old Testament ends. Now, what does this have to do with our topic? Well, there's some important details here uh, as to how God closes the Old Testament. He gives his final instructions to a very rebellious and defiant people in preparation for what we call the period of silence. And that's only partially true. Was it a period of silence? Well, it, insofar as uh, Judah or Israel um did not hear audibly from God. God sent no more prophets. God sent no one to speak to them. He sent no one to, uh, they didn't hear from God in, in, a, on, in, a, in a personal basis. What he told them was, remember the law of Moses. I, you have my written word, okay? I'm not speaking to you again until the coming of Elijah. When Elijah comes, then, then we'll, we'll move on to what's next. Until that time, you have my word in written form. You have the law of Moses do that. There's no room for confusion there. 
the fact that God didn't speak to them audibly during that time doesn't necessarily mean it was silent. The, the word of God could have been read and heard in the ears and the minds and the hearts of his people at any time. They had it in written form. And so th- this idea that like Judah or like Israel, they were left without guidance from God. That's not true. They had clear guidance from God. They had exactly what God wanted them to have. And he told them exactly what he wanted them to do and how he wanted them to do it. And so they are now accountable to do exactly as God said in the law of Moses. If he were to show up at the end of that 400 years and judge them based on what they did or did not do, it would be based on what was written in the law of Moses. He wouldn't show up and say, oh, you poor people, you just had no word from me. You had no guidance. That's not true. They had clear guidance from God. They knew exactly what to do. Remember the law of Moses. They had his word in written form. And so for this 400, 450 years, whatever the time span was between Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and power of Elias. That was the coming they were waiting for. And it said that Elijah would turn, it said he would turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. And, and this would all be done in preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Look at Luke chapter one, verse 11, Luke chapter one, verses 11 through 17. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness and many shall rejoice at his birth for he shall be great and in the sight of the Lord. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist appears on the scene and he comes in the spirit and power of Elias, just as Malachi said. He turned the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers. That that was the 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 figure, the person they were waiting to come. Okay? From Malachi to the coming of John the Baptist. Keep my law. Do what is written in the law of Moses. God tried to rebuke them. He tried to help them. He tried to correct them in the book of Malachi. They refused it. They fought with him. They argued with him. He said, okay, I'm done talking to you. I have nothing else to say to you until John the Baptist comes. When he comes in the spirit and power of Elias, then we'll pick up our conversation at that time. Until then, you better do what's written in my law. And they had that law. They had no excuse. They had the word of God. You and I. We have the word of God. We have no excuse. We have more clear revelation from God than they did. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us. They did not. We have Bible-believing churches all over the world, ample freedoms, even in a world full of turmoil and hatred towards God right now, we still have a lot of freedom to study, to read, to worship, to teach, to preach, to spread the word of God as diligently and as eagerly as we would like to do. The question is, what do you want to do? What is your interest? If you're not interested in spreading God's word then what you're going to do is you're going to sit back and say, well, I can't, you know, I can't do it right now. The time has not come. If God would lead me, if he would guide me, if he would show me who to take it to or who to tell, as though you don't encounter lost souls on a daily basis everywhere you go. There's no excuse. We have no excuse. And we don't want to be putting ourselves in a position in which we are blaming God for our lack of diligence to do what God clearly told us to do. 
And so this marked an event in which God was ready to speak to his people again. This is a turning point in God's word. This is a major shift in the word of God. John the Baptist shows up and now he is preparing people. The Messiah is coming. We're about to stand face to face with the Messiah. And John was to prepare people for that. That, that's a, uh, that is a major event. The manifestation of God in the flesh. You're about to see him face to face. And um, uh, he had to prepare people for that. Now, to further illustrate this, look at Luke 16, verses 16 through 17. And this just further notes the idea of, of going from A and then A ending at B. You know, the, the process was God rebuked his people. They argued with him. They didn't want anything to do with, with what he said. So in response, he tells them, I'm not speaking to you again until, until Elias come, until Elijah comes. John the Baptist comes in the spirit and power of Elias, and that signified a turning point, a change that is very important. Luke 16, verses 16 through 17, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. So the law and the prophets, that which the people were to obey until John, now they would be introduced to the kingdom of God. Now there's going to be a change. Now there's going to be a shift. Messiah is here. Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to be nailed to a tree. He's a man of sorrows. He came to die on the cross. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again the third day. And then at, upon his death begins the New Testament. Now you got men going into Jerusalem telling people in Jerusalem, you don't have to go to that temple anymore. You don't have to give sacrifices anymore. Jesus Christ was the last sacrifice. When this man made one sacrifice, his body, he went and sat on the right hand of the Father in heaven. He sanctified everybody forever. He paid for sins one and for all. There's no need to go to the, temp- to, to the temple anymore. Now the, the law now is a schoolmaster to bring you unto Christ. The law is the knowledge of sin. It's no longer a religious spectrum that you need to keep in order to try and temporarily appease God. Now it helps you realize you can't appease God. You can't please God. The only thing that pleases God is the fact that his son died for our sins. And if you want to be found on the, on the right side of God, you better trust in what his son did on the cross. This, rep- this signifies a major shift in how God has been dealing with his people. So the law and the prophets were until John. What, what did he tell Judah, what did he tell them in Malachi? He said, he said in Malachi, you remember the law of Moses, do that. Mind you, that was a prophet preaching that. So God sent his prophet, his prophet preached to his people and said, you know what? Just forget it. Do the law of Moses. Keep the law of Moses. Remember the law of Moses. Do that. When I'm ready to speak to you again, I'll send John. So here we have John the Baptist on the scene. Uh, But until this time came, the people were responsible to continue in obedience to the written word of God, just as you and I, until the Lord comes back, we're in a very, we're in a very similar situation. It's beautifully pictured by this situation with Judah, but it's also pictured by John, the, the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was telling people, he was warning people, he was preaching the people, prepare to meet thy God. The Lord is about to come. Well, the same is true for us. Our, our, our messages are slightly different. John preached the, the, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, uh, representing the kingdom of heaven. And uh, our focus is on the kingdom of God. We want to preach and tell people that Jesus Christ is coming back. Either you're going to die or Christ is going to return. One of those two is going to happen. Before either one happens, you need to make sure to trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the, for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul. And if you don't do that, you're going to find yourself in a terrible situation, in eternal torment. And it's unnecessary. 
Luke 16 tells us God's word in written form is so dependable that heaven and earth will pass before one jot or one tittle of God's word fails. Imagine that. So God is telling you, so let's go back to Malachi. Remember the law of Moses. In other words, remember the written word of God. You don't need external revelation from God. He has given you his word in written form. And and because of that fact, you have something so dependable that the ground you're standing on will disappear before anything happens to that word. So why do we sit and wait for something else to come along? Why do we why do we depend on notions and feelings and God giving me peace about it? Why would we accept anything less than the written word of God, which we have in full detail from Genesis to Revelation? All of which will outlast anything on this planet or in this world or in heaven or in earth. Nothing, nothing will survive longer than the word of God. You can depend on it. You can depend on on God's word more than you can depend on anything. If you try and depend on anything else, you know, (laughs) we, we can have such confidence in God's word when dealing with this world. It will cease to exist, the world, before God's word misleads us in any way. Anything in this world, you name it. Whatever it is that you have, you have, I mean, think of something you have great confidence in. You know, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be dependable. It's always going to work. God's word is more dependable than that. Infinitely more. That is going to pass away someday. Whatever it is, God's word is, is not going to fail you. So rather than placing this focus or emphasis on external revelation outside the book that God gave us, why not stick with the word we know is going to survive? It's going to last. It's dependable. We can go back. We can be reminded of it. We can read it over and over. It, it's, it's the word of God. That's where our focus is supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to be uh, spending our time in, spending our, our energy on. Why, 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 why would we not trust that? Exactly as it's written, exactly as it says, you don't need Greek, you don't need Hebrew, you don't need to go find out the, the, the deeper meaning of what God said. It means what it says. And so I encourage you to, to place that confidence in that book. Now, through this study, I intend to demonstrate two primary points. One, I believe I've already demonstrated. First, um, the first one is, When God is silent audibly, that's important. And by audibly, I would include in that visions, dreams, notions, leadings, peace, whatever, whatever term you've put on, on the idea of God giving you something other than what he already gave you in his word. Okay. We are to continue trusting his written word above all other sources of ideas and authorities. If you, most Baptists, most people who believe the Bible will, will answer the question, is the Bible your final authority? Absolutely. It's my final authority. Okay. What are you doing with your life? Well, I'm just waiting for God to tell me what to do. (laughs) Okay. Let me ask you again. Is the Bible your final authority? Did God say nothing in the Bible about what he wanted you to do with your life? Now, I, you know, I want to be fair. I understand there are some details that need to be worked out. You need some counsel. You need some understanding. You, you, you need some direction. But what's happening is people who need a little more information, which could be gained from, your pa- from meeting with your pastor and men in leadership with your church or, uh, uh, or corresponding with faithful missionaries. I mean, there, there are a lot of ways God can help you and guide you along. There's safety in a multitude of counselors, but that's not what's happening because you're not getting this special revelation. Many people just stop. They become stagnant. They become, they get to a 
to a certain place and they just stay right there. I'm not going any further until God shows me something else. God has no obligation to show you anything else. Especially when you're, when we, let me include myself in this, are not doing half of what he said in his word. So if, we, if, we're, on, if we're not doing half of what is written in the book that he gave us, why would he give us more? It just doesn't make sense. It's not a, it's not a coherent approach to the Christian life. And we want to be coherent. This, this lack of coherency is what makes us the laughingstock that Christianity has become in the Western world, because as they strive to at least be coherent in, in even their most ridiculous beliefs, we, we don't. We place no emphasis on that. We think we can just say outrageous things and people are just supposed to take it. And you can't do that. That's not an option. The Lord Jesus Christ will return someday to catch away his bride. Until then, we have ample written scripture to obey. We are without excuse. Now, that's the first idea. The second, when, when God must intervene, okay? When we put God in a, posi- in a position that he must intervene, um, it is usually because his people are not obeying the express instructions given to them. It's not a good thing to put yourself in a position to require God to intervene and provide his word outside of what he already told you. It, at least not in the Bible, it was never a good thing. Um, God's intervention typically comes in the form of sending his word, and it is usually the announcement of judgment. Every time then came the word of the Lord, every time it's used, it's judgment. Every time. We have no reason to find ourselves in this position. We have plenty of word from God to obey and to keep us plenty busy. So rather than using unbiblical but spiritual sounding terminology that inadvertently blames God for our inactivity, let's be faithful to what God has clearly instructed us. Now, I know that doesn't sound as deep as I got a vision from God. I got a word from God. I got a knowledge from God. I got a leading from God. I got peace from God. I got peace about it. I got, you know, all these things that people say. I understand someone showing up and saying, you know, I read in the Bible, he told me to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I just decided to do that. <laughs> it just, okay, well, that's deep. But it is. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The saving doesn't happen without the preaching, and the preaching doesn't happen if you and I don't go into all the world and preach the gospel that God gave us to preach. Now, you might be hung up on a detail like, okay, does God, I want to be, I believe the Lord wants me to be a missionary. Should I go to Africa? Should I go to Asia? Okay, where in Africa? Where in Asia? Those details might need to be ironed out through counsel with your pastor, through, through, like I said before, corresponding with missionaries, finding out what the need is. I mean, there's, there's, there's a number of ways, but there are still people in your community. There are still people in your town that need to hear the gospel and you have it, you have it and you have the ability to give the, give it to them. But are you? There are people at your work who need the gospel. You're eager to quit your job and move around the world and preach the gospel, but will you give it to somebody who's sitting at the, at the cubicle right next to you? Has your neighbor heard the gospel? Has your neighborhood heard the gospel? There's so much that we all could be doing where we are right now. And instead of doing that, we're looking to some future hope or event that we think God's going to reveal to us externally outside his word and it hinders us from doing what God wants us to do right where we are right now. And I'm saying that is unacceptable. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, 10 times the Lord used the phrase, then came the word of the Lord. And each time it was used to announce God's judgment on his people for their disobedience. That disobedience can come in the form of inactivity 
simply not doing what God has instructed, or it may come in the form of actively disobeying God in a more defiant and rebellious manner. Either way, it causes God's anger to be stored up until he reaches a point in which he must, he must deal with the problem. And what I'm trying to encourage us to do is not get God to that point. And again, inadvertently blaming God as we, as we get him to that point. I I think we have plenty of clear instruction from God that we can obey right now without excuse, without waiting for something else. And, and, you know, there's also merit in becoming content where you are and, and getting over the idea that God must have something else. You don't always need to be looking to go somewhere else and to do something else, especially if there's plenty for you to do right where you are. Some missionaries, and you know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical. I just want to introduce the idea to you. They leave their home church, and their home church is falling apart. You know that no, few people, if any, in their home church are doing anything to reach their their local community for the Lord Jesus Christ, but they feel like they need to leave and go across the world, and that doesn't seem like a very coherent idea either. Why would you leave one place where nothing is being done and go to serve the Lord somewhere else? Um, If, if I'm just, my conviction on this, you, if you want to put it that way, is that if I found out my home church had been deserted of servants and nothing was being done, which is not the case. I I have an incredible home church where 60 to 70% of the people are directly participating in some form of, of evangelism and ministry in, in and throughout the church that, you know, I would just be one among many. But if I found out that that all just collapsed, I believe I have a responsibility to go help take care of my home church. And so this idea that we need to be continually looking for something else somewhere else, it just shows a lack of contentment in what God has given you where you are. Now it may be that 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 it may be a good idea for you to go somewhere else. There may be so many people actively involved in your local church. Your pastor has an assistant pastor. He's got deacons. He's got people participating in all the ministries of the church, door knocking, public evangelism, which I'm sure your church has. If it doesn't, it should, and it's a shame if you don't. But active involvement by a goodly number of people in your home church is a good indicator the church is healthy and possibly ready to send people out to go do other things. Uh, there's a church in Capital City. The pastor there, uh, you know, uh, Adam Thompson is the pastor. Uh, they, ha- they, they have an, a very interesting concept when it comes to sending out missionaries. First of all, they want to know, have you been involved in ministry in your local church before they start thinking about sending you around the world to do what you haven't been doing at home. Secondly, if you've been involved in a ministry before you leave, they require you to train someone to take your place, which is a beautiful idea. The idea of just sending out missionaries with no thought for how you're going to sustain your home church. And then again, but well, we'll just, we'll just pray God sends us somebody. <laughs> Why is all the responsibility on God? We act as though God gave us no individual responsibility. And Christianity, probably more than any religion, is a, is a religion, is, is a, is a, uh, is, is, forms concepts of personal responsibility more than any other religion in the world. But we're constantly shirking our personal responsibility in, under this spiritual pretense that we're just we're just waiting on God to do it. Are you a Calvinist? You have no individual responsibility whatsoever from God? No, that, that's not the case. That's not true. God gives us lots of personal individual responsibility, and the the function of your local church is heavily based on the participation of every member of the body of Christ who assembles there. When you're not there and you don't do your part, you harm the body. You frustrate the body. You cause it to function in an irregular way. And if you've had 
problems with your physical body, then you can imagine what's happening to the spiritual body, the body of Christ. Because we just, we don't have people participating. People have this idea that either God's going to do it, the pastor's going to do it, the deacon's going to do it, or the missionary's going to do it. But not me. And that is an idea that needs to be abandoned immediately. You are infinitely, infinitely important both in your local assembly and in the body of Christ as a whole. And if we don't grasp that, we're not going to get over this problem. And we're going to see missions in America just continue to cease and to cease and to cease until it's no more. And we already see the handwriting on the wall in America. We already see the direction, the chosen direction of America. It may be that one or two things are preventing the total collapse. That's America's protection of Israel. And American Bible-believing churches are unbelievably generous when it comes to missions. But if you have no missionaries to be generous to, we've got a problem. We've got a serious problem. We need to fix this problem. And at first, it starts with a proper philosophical approach to your individual responsibility in the body of Christ. So let's look at a few of these where the, where the word of God came, but it wasn't a good thing. First Samuel 15 verses nine through 11, but Saul and the people spared Agag. That's not good. That's not good at all. And the best of the sheep hmm, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and of the lambs, and of all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse. Imagine that. We only disobeyed God when it came to the things that, that caught our attention, our desire, our wants. But when it came to things we didn't want, we were, we were perfectly happy to obey God. Very interesting that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel saying, it repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments and it grieved Samuel and he cried unto the Lord all night. Now, if you recall the background of this passage, Saul was given clear instructions to utterly destroy everything and everyone, but somehow he convinced himself it was all right to keep that which was personally desirable. And these are the types of half-hearted measures we often take in our spiritual lives. We, we are apt to do this, and we've got to keep an eye out for it because it's not as clear in, in our situation as it is in Saul's situation. It's easy to read what happened to Saul and say, man, I can't believe he did that. But we remove areas of our lives or character that are less desirable to us. But we find some way to justify keeping the areas we find interesting, desirable, valuable, despite what God says about them. See, it's not so clear cut. It's not so easy when it comes to our character, when it comes to what we watch, when it comes to what we listen to. Uh, if you play video games, I, I don't know why. There would be absolutely no spiritual gain whatsoever to play video games. Now, if you're a grown man and you play video games, you've got serious problems. And you need to repent of it and get rid of it immediately. Grow up. There is absolutely no excuse whatsoever to have a gaming console in your house. Or on your phone or on your computer if that's what they exist for, you should get rid of them. It's a joke. It's, it's a complete waste of time and a complete waste of life. There is so much you could be doing and so much we could be accomplishing for, for, for the glory of God. And instead you're playing video games. So uh, now uh, I recall a pastor who was once, a, he, he used to be, he's a, he's a Baptist pastor now, he used to be a Roman Catholic. And, you know, every year for Lent in Roman Catholicism, you're supposed to, you know, sacrifice something, give up some, something you like, something you desire. Many people give up meat or, you know, what I, I, you know, I don't know all the details. They, they, they give up something. 
So every year, <laughs> every year he would give up pistachio flavored ice cream. Now that's what we do. Now, he also mentioned that he doesn't eat pistachio flavored ice cream and never has, but he was willing to sacrifice that every year for Lent. <laughs> and we're willing to sacrifice the things we don't really care about. Like, oh, I, I could get rid of that and do more for God. I don't, I don't really do that. I don't really care about that. So I'll, I'll, I'll let that go. But what about the things you care about the most? What about the things that have more of your attention? Things you're more attracted to, they get more, they get more of your heart. Are you willing to give those things up? Or are you gonna you gonna remain in a state of idolatry? So this was Saul. He did exactly as the Lord said, according to his own testimony. And what what he did grieved God, and it grieved Samuel. But it did not bother Saul until he heard the judgment of God. It, it wasn't until Saul realized what God was going to do to him because of his lack of obedience. Then Saul realized or, or felt or, or was led <laughs> to be grievous about what his, his, his disobedience. Jeremiah 29 verses 30 through 32, we'll take one more of these. There's, there's 10. You can look them up and see the rest, but I, I think these two will clearly illustrate the idea. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Send to all them of the captivity, saying, Thus saith the Lord concerning Shemaiah the Nehilamite, because that Shemaiah hath prophesied unto you, and I sent him not, and he calls you to trust in a lie, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will punish Shemaiah, the, the Nehilamite, and his seed. He shall not have a man to dwell among the people, neither shall he behold the good that I will do for my people, saith the Lord, because he hath taught rebellion against the Lord. Now, one prominent theme in the book of Jeremiah is that of lying pastors, lying pastors. We've got to be very careful with the word of God. It needs to be presented honestly and with great integrity. Now, you know, there is a difference between maybe not fully understanding and accidentally presenting something that's a little bit off track versus lying. I believe there is a line there that, that can be crossed. If you're just lying, you're just outright lying. You're, you're in a whole different category of dirt bag and you deserve the judgment of God. Um, men who deliberately misrepresent God in order to gain the hearts of people. That's what we're talking about. You want to gain a following, so you're going to use God's name. You're going to use the name of Jesus Christ, but you're going to misrepresent God's righteousness, His holiness, even His mercy or His grace. It goes on both. It goes both ways. You have some churches today who just ignore the the, the judgment of God. They want you to know God is love. He's a big teddy bear in the sky. He just loves everybody and everything, and and He's never angry. There's a billboard in Orlando that says God is not angry except the Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. That, that pastor who initiated putting up that billboard, he's a liar. But then you have churches who major on the judgment of God and they act like God is not love and they act like God has no mercy and God has no grace. That's just as off track as, as the other. And we want to represent God properly according to his word. You don't get to pick one side and present that side. Now, you can't teach everything in one lesson or in one sermon or in one study, but you should do your best to be honest and forthright. And the passage that's being taught needs to be taught as clearly and as honestly, no matter how difficult or how soft, it has to be taught properly. And we, I, I think we're in a little trouble here as a whole. Not that 
pastors do not exist who are genuinely and honestly with integrity uh, teaching the word of God in context, even when it's difficult and even when it's not difficult. But we have a large number who are not. And we have denominations that exist now because they are unwilling to teach the judgment of God. You have homosexual friendly churches now. You have female pastors now. We have, you know, next it'll be transgender if it's if, if it hasn't already slipped in somewhere. These are people, these are lying pastors who are going to receive the judgment of God, maybe in this life, but they will surely stand before God and answer for the foolishness that they are presenting people. And you don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that person. So when I open the book of Haggai and I have to teach something that seems rather difficult, <laughs> that is convicting for me to even read, much less bring to you and, and put my finger in your chest on God's behalf, I have a responsibility. If I'm going to do this, I have to do it honestly. And so that's, if you're going to come here and listen to these sermons, that's what you're going to get. That's not going to change. Either YouTube's going to take it down, Google's going to kick it off, Microsoft Bing's going to remove it, Facebook's going to remove it, Podbean's going to remove it, <laughs> whoever's hosting it, uh, at some point, they, it, it may no longer be tolerable. I, I understand that. But as long as it is, this is what you're going to get. As best I can, I'm going to preach the word of God to you. Now, in today's world, we're under great pressure to conform its various confused visions of morality and tolerance. As a result, many Christians have decided it's best to either back off clear biblical rhetoric or to completely alter what God said in exchange for applause from the world rather than pleasing God. Not a good idea. That applause can be, it can be like a drug. You want to please God. That has eternal, that has eternal consequences. Getting the applause from the world, first of all, it's going to be temporary because they're going to expect you to go further than you were willing to go. And secondly, then you're going to face God. <laughs> Um, it's best to just stick with God. You may want to reconsider those propositions. It may be that you cause God to send you some external revelation from his word by way of chastisement or judgment. Christians have the grave responsibility of representing God and his word with integrity. We don't have the option to adopt the difficult teachings of the Bible to conform with this world's insane and rapidly changing moral compass. Those th that's just not an option for us. Now to wrap this up, we have clear scripture from God's word to guide us and lead us in all things, which pertaineth to life and godliness. If God gave us all things that pertain to those two realms, what else do you need? Why do you need something more? Why are we accusing God of leaving something out? Why are we accusing God of lacking clarity? Now, I understand we don't say it that way, but our actions, like, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not discounting the reality. There may be some areas of life in which we need further counsel. We may need to be patient. We may need to wait for further direction. But that does not excuse us from doing what God clearly commands in his word here and now, wherever here is, whenever now is. You can do what God said. My pastor used to say, you know, <laughs> just, just obey God for the next five minutes. And then five years from now, you might find yourself in a jungle somewhere preaching the gospel and don't even know how you got there. You know, what? We get hung up on 10 years down the road. Why won't God show me what he wants 10 years from now? Why don't you just do what he wants right now? What you know is so clearly revealed in his word right now. Why would you hinder your ability to serve God down the road by not doing what you know God wants you to do right now, wherever you are? And so that's, that's the idea. It comes with consequences, but let's be obedient to do exactly what we know God wants us to do, what we have so clearly read in his word, 
No more spiritual excuses. Let's serve the Lord faithfully. Thank you for listening, and God bless. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.